Sorry, Bob and Morris here and here. Actually, Joe and Mary, I hope everybody's okay. Um, any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? And look okay, out, there's Chester. And Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us. Um, strengthen us, please, in your grace um, to put our sins away. Forgive them, please, um, all of us. Um, give us the courage to see them and not be afraid. Um, to not let whatever sins we carry keep us from hoping in you, trusting in you. One of the values of these works is that they open up our inner life. They show us those secret sides of ourselves that are so often hidden. Um, um, all of us carry these secrets, these dark parts of ourselves. Um, some people don't see them. Um, if we're doing anything in this group, it's to learn to see them more truthfully. And hopefully take great, no, take greater hope in you to stay with you as um, whatever we do going forward with your help. Um, strengthen us, please. Your words to us this last weekend were, there's good and bad. We have to choose. Um, in your own words, those are the words from the prophets before you came. In your own words, you reminded us that um, we were asked um, not to commit adultery, not to kill. Um, you warned us that um, thinking lustfully about another person, or even about things, possessions, or even to get angry to the point of wanting to harm somebody, even if we never act on it, those are sins. You call us to an inner life to change there, when the easiest thing for us to do, particularly as we've seen from this literature, is to conform to the world, to be decent, respectable, upstanding, and hide, not deal with those harder things in us. Um, help all of us take a strength to move closer to you, um, to not be afraid, to trust in you, um, to grow in holiness. That's our call. Strengthen us to do that. Um, forgive us when we fail. Strengthen us to pick ourselves up again when we do. I ask a special blessing on Bob and Marcy. Keep them well, particularly Marcy. Um, be with um, Valerie and Chester. Hope everything's okay. And especially with Mary. I know she wasn't well. Um, and Joe. Um, Watch over all of us. Let your blessing be upon all of us um, in what we're doing in this group. And we offer these prayers and thanksgiving for all you do in um, your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, Jane, can you close that door? Or put a mark in it if, in case somebody comes in late. I don't know. Um, I'm going to read a, another poem from... Radnati, the, um, the Hungarian poet that I read from last week. Remember, he, um, Radnati was um, raised Jewish in Hungary. 
he was taken captive by the Germans and forced into a labor squad. And he was a part of a large number of Jews who were forced into labor to help build this road um, towards, the end, or, uh, towards, towards the end of the war. Um, he converted to Catholicism after he married. Um, he was Catholic and became one of Hungary's great poets. Um, he's little known because he's so modern. Um, and you know from what I've said that in the last forced march, when the prisoners um, became so weak that they couldn't even walk anymore, because I'm sure the Jews or the Germans weren't feeding them, they were shot and just thrown to the side of the road into a grave. When Renati died, um, he was witness to the execution of his friend. And um, shortly afterwards, he was executed too. And, and um, a large group of men um, um, were thrown into a large burial ground and left there. It wasn't until several months later that their bodies were discovered and exhumed, brought up, and they discovered in Renati's pockets the notebook with his poems, the, the last poems that he wrote during the end of his life. Remember the last one that I read last week was about that moment when he, well, two weeks ago I, I read you that poem called Foamy Sky, where it describes the sky in terms of toxic gases. Imagine being out on a battlefield in the Second World War with bombs and gases and explosions going on and the air that you're breathing is full of gases. And He describes the, the, the landscape sky in terms of a foamy sky as if it were a toxic liquid, a chemical. And the poem I read last week, it was that very short poem describing the moment when his friend was executed and the German soldier looks at him and, and German says he's still, he's still breathing and then shoots him again. Um, so um, I, thought these, <laughs> I thought these poems would be appropriate because we're moving towards the 20th century, Second World War, and the change in Western culture. I mean, um, Germany was a major part of Europe and produced this. You know, and um, it led to a world war um, and uh, a power unleashed by human beings that we never witnessed before, that finally ended with the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. Um, Remember the last poems that I read from, the very last one was called Postcards, and it was number four. I'll read it again and then I'll read a new one tonight. Postcard number four. I fell beside him and his corpse turned over, tight already as a snapping string, rigid from a death sting, shot in the neck. And that's how you'll end too, I whispered to myself. Lie still, no moving. Now patience, flowers in death. Couldn't escape it even with his patience. Then I could hear der Sprich noch auf, above and very near. Blood mixed with mud was drying on my ear. The soldier saying, he's still, he's still standing, so breathing. This is the second postcard. At nine kilometers, the pall of burning hayrick homestead farm, at the field's edge, the peasants silent smoking pipes against the fear of harm here, a lake ruffled only by the step of tiny shepherdess, where a white cloud is what the ruffled sheep drink, 
in their lowliness. It was just before he died. He loved nature. He saw beauty, but he also saw nature being wounded all around him. So, okay. Let me try to make a, um, a brief recap of what we did last um, we've already talked about um, the, sh the shift of a cultural center from Rome to Byzantium or Constantinople to Moscow and the importance of that. Um, Peter's um, visiting the West and bringing back to Russia um, a new sense of technology and potential po possibilities for a culture. And what he did is instantaneously put people to work and impose these ideas on what before had been a holy mother Russia. It's just absolutely, absolutely crucial to see that. That Russia, prior to Peter, was a feudal world. So he took a culture that's, that thought of itself almost strictly in, in religious terms, Holy Mother Russia, and imposed in Enlightenment ideas, largely from France, it was the center of intellectual life then, it's where the French Revolution took place, um, and artificially imposed it and created these, um, these tremendous dislocations that left people lost, not knowing who they were. It, it created unreal um, hopes and aspirations in some people, and a sense of defeat in others. The, the peasants, even though they um, were given their freedom, the serfs, um, were often lost. They had no way of supporting themselves. They no longer had anybody taking care of them. They had to pay rent for the landowners now, even though they were free, and the landowners couldn't always support them because of the changes. So it was a time of tremendous upheaval. One of the interesting things to think about, and I, I I've not mentioned this before, but I, but I want to underscore it here. Um, that when we look at the modern world and, and, be, and are aware that an industrial paradigm is beginning to shape Western culture particularly and, and moving east, um, it, 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 it caused these tremendous dislocations in old traditional ways of living. And to see the importance of this, just remember, it happened in Ireland. It happened in Russia. It happened in America, in the South. What was going on in all those countries, I think in some degree you could say it was even happening in Japan and, and uh, South Korea. But particularly in Ireland and Russia and America. And let me just take America just to illustrate. Uh, the South in America was an agrarian world. It was an aristocratic world, but it was basically agrarian. There were slaves. People owned them. The serfs were owned. Dostoevsky calls attention to that fact. Um, some of the slaves were sold off. So there was this mentality that a, that a person could be bought and sold. It was a part of their feudal culture. But in the South, the South was agrarian. The North was an industrial world. There were two different worlds in America in the 19th century. Um, the South was based on a plantation economy depended heavily on a slave class. Um, so when the North defeated the South, the, the South in one sense was left in ruins. A way of living 
got absolutely turned on its head. The Northerners came in and wanted to dictate on what they should be educated and what books and, you know, if you know this, what is it? The, the Scopes trial? The monkey trial? Snopes. Huh? Snopes. Snope, is it Snopes? Snopes. Scopes. Scopes. Yeah, Scopes. Yeah. No, Snopes is what we read in Faulkner. No, Snopes is what we did in Faulkner. Faulkner. Scopes is the. Um, so we saw a, a, whole, a whole culture dismantled. But here's one of the interesting things about these moments of historic dislocation, because they've happened periodically. Whenever a, whenever a civilization, a culture, reaches its apex, something happens to destroy it, to threaten it, it um, that culture um, becomes amazingly productive. It happened in the Renaissance. You know that. A Christian Middle Ages was passing. A Copernican uh, worldview was coming in. Think about the writing that came out of them. Shakespeare, Dunn, Milton, the lyric poets, um, all the, the Jacobean um, trad tragedians, you know, that this tremendous outpouring of literature. It happened in the South here. It produced the agrarian writers. Faulkner was the master. I mean, it finally led to him. The point I want to make here is that it's really interesting historically to look back at moments like this because at every one of those moments where there are radical changes in a culture and a way, a traditional way of living is being lost, great poets emerge. It's as if people are inspired. I don't think this is a conscious, I'm going to hold on to this. People are inspired to hold on to what they're about to lose. And I've used this word before. It's one of the most important aspects of literature. It's the, it's, the mo, it's a way of thinking, a mode of memory, of memoria, to hold on to what's about to be lost. Um, and it happened, um, it happened in America, it happened in Ireland. When you look at the, um, the Irish, what they call the Irish Renaissance with Joyce and, um, what's his name? Um, Same. Hmm? Sing. Sing, and the other one I can't remember, but um, a good number of um, um, William Butler Yeats, one of the great poets of the 20th century. So it's it's an interesting phenomenon that that out of destruction is is not a song of celebration, but a song affirming something about a culture that's about to be lost, and that's true here. So. Um, in Dostoevsky's world, we're in a world in which all of these dislocations have been taking place. Now, just to recall very, very briefly, because it's going to be an issue in some of the passages that I'm about to read in a minute, we've talked forever about the church-state conflicts. We've done it um, whenever we did the Middle Ages, when we did um, the Protestant um, Catholic souls section. Remember that the church and state were at odds constantly in the Middle Ages. Um, I've argued that I think one of the great achievements of the Middle Ages is when the church dissociated itself from the empire. It, it, it helped produce what we know today as the first republics of the West in the modern sort. Dante's um, Florence, Venice, and um, all of those were prototypes of America. It's a new kind of regime. The model for it came into existence then. Now remember, when you think about the struggles between church and state, um, because I'm arguing that the church, one of its great achievements is the way that it sorted itself out. Um, remember at the beginning, I, I, when, when we did the, um, 
I don't remember. I think it's when we did the Commedia. I gave you those handouts. I even gave you this handout, of, you know, this thumbnail uh, history again. That in the beginning of the West, there is a clear understanding that there are two spheres of power. Caesars and gods. And both of them are sovereign in their spheres. Christ made that clear. Give unto Caesars what's Caesars. Give unto God what's God. So there are two authorities, and they're both sovereign in their fields. So it's, it's really, when you think about the church-state conflict, don't forget that, because some people make it a black-white thing, when it's not. Both of them were, were struggling to test out their powers because in their, they were both sovereign. So, I mean, just for an example, I mean, um, the Pope crowned Charlemagne, 800, 11th century. Henry IV deposed the Pope. He wanted to elect another. He's the emperor. He should have no business in that. Henry II had Thomas Becket killed because he wouldn't come into line with what he wanted. Um, Dante hated Boniface, but Boniface, remember, because he was claiming too much political authority. When, when at that point, it, it's becoming clear to most serious thinkers that those two powers are sorting themselves out. Um, Calvin wanted to establish a theocracy to turn the religion into a, give it a state form. Henry took over control of the church in England, made himself sovereign. It doesn't stop. Even in the French Revolution, and as, as late as the 18th century, when the revolutions were going on in Europe, France um, closed the churches, confiscated the grounds, and pressured um, monks and um, women religious to deny their orders. And you know as late as the 19th century, when we did uh, Hopkins, um, the Wind Hover. Remember the nuns were forced out of Germany because their property, that was, that was the middle of the 19th century. They were forced out of Germany and died in that shipwreck. So the church-state problems have been complex and dense throughout our history. Um, um, we're seeing the effects of them in some way, and they're a central issue in that, in that opening scene in the Monastery of Brothers, because the men are gonna talk about exactly what should happen between church and state. Um, one of the major themes of, of, of brothers, you all know, is this sense of dislocation, leaving people um, unsure of who they are, encouraging some people to be to aspire, to be better than they are. Miosov is one of those characters we've looked at. Even Shmerdikov um, falls into that class. And the strained relation between the sexes, between men and women. One of the effects of the fall, we've seen that in every work we've had, are the tensions between men and women was one of the one of the things carried over from the loss of Eden. But those strains are heightened in this modern world. Um, I've talked about the novel briefly, that it represents a new way of thinking. It, it distinguishes itself from the epic, remember, because the epic looks back to a past that's closed, it's idealized, it's heroic. The novel takes on an open-ended present. It gives itself to what's familiar, what's uncertain, what's searching. It's not a closed form. It lends itself to learning to get along in the world, to learn from the world, to learn from mistakes. Ishmael fits into that category. Alyosha does. Maybe even Ivan, you could argue. So those are some of the things we've talked about. 
Um, I want to. I want to. I want to look specifically this week at. I want to go back to the historical struggle. I want to pick up the novel again, and I want to look at the Grand Inquisitor. I don't want to deal with prophecy tonight, but as you read, one of the things I'd like to ask you all to be aware of are prophetic moments, because there are constant hints that something's about to happen, and people seem to have a sense of. In fact, some people get prophetic about it. There are prophetic moments. Think about what Dostoevsky's doing. Because prof prophecy claims to have a power and a stature that reason doesn't. And we're in a world in which people are giving themselves to rational modes of thought. It's one of the effects of the enlightenment. Okay. Um, I want to look at um, the opening. I want to go back. I'd like to everybody to keep in mind the church-state conflict and it, its effects on people, because nobody's living in Dostoevsky's world at this time who doesn't look back to a holy mother Russia. Their roots are sacred. They think of themselves as being a sacred country, but the country's being taken over by Enlightenment ideas that in lots of ways are anti-religious. So there's this buried, un unconscious agon would be the best word, honestly, agon. You, you, you know that, you all know what that word means, right? It's from the Greek struggle, from which we get agony. There's this underlying agon. Um, everybody carries it, whether they're conscious of it or not. Um, it's, it's there in every character. It's there between the sexes. So what I want to do now is go back to those opening chapters when the men are meeting at the monastery and Zosimov receives um, the men. They're all waiting for Dmitri. And you remember there's that embarrassing exchange between Miasov and Fyodor Karamazov. I'm going to go back to that again in a minute. But right now what I want to do is, is look at those two scenes when Zosimov leaves to go bless the women, and then he comes back um, um, to step into that argument that's already begun between the men, between Ivan and Musev and the others, okay? So turn to page 47, or sorry, 44. 44 is when um, remember this is back, I'm not going to do this now, but just to go back, this is when Zosimov says to Fyodor, do not be ashamed. Whatever else you do, do not be ashamed, because you know that, that Fyodor is constantly making a fool of himself and openly declares it. He says, I'm a buffoon, that's who I am, and everybody's becoming embarrassed except Zosimov, and that's crucial to know. What does that say, before we go, what does that say, that everybody's embarrassed except Zosimov? Because it's, I, I want to go back, this whole thing about Manipian satire is, is where I want to go to in a few minutes, but what does that say about the, about the characters? Manipian satire. God bless. Um, spell Manipian. M-E-N-I-P-P-E-A-N, Manipian. Sorry, it's an old, oh, here. It's an old Greek writer. 
whose works have been lost, but it, I'm going to come to it. I'm going to come to it in a minute, Mark. What does it say that everybody's embarrassed except Zosimov? If you, I mean, if we were looking analytically at a scene and talking about characters, that, I know that's a broad statement, but it's worth pausing on for a minute before we look at what happens here. What does it say? Zosimov is above it all. How? In what way? He he understands more of what motives are in play, background history of the characters, and he, he knows that, it, well, it's kind of an act that's going on. What does it say about, I couldn't agree more, what does it say about the other characters? They take it at face value. They take him at, and his antics. They, he is disruptive, he's calling attention to himself, he may be insecure. They, they aren't getting down to what, you know, what's really going on. I think what it sh I should wait on this because it, it's going to go to Manipian Saturn. I really want to get there because this is so important. I think it shows that they're too preoccupied with surfaces, with appearances, because it defines their life because they're so taken up by it. They're far more concerned. If, if you set them all next to each other, what you discover in Zosimov, I mean, picture Christ there. Might as well picture him. If he came to heal our sins, there would have been no sin he would not have known. None. And, um, he, I, he, I mean, as he did with Pilate or Herod, or, you know, he wouldn't have condemned anybody, he wouldn't have done anything. Um, so one of the first things that we see here is that everybody, everybody is preoccupied with social surfaces except Zosimo. He leaves the men and he goes to bless the women. And all these people, in a sense, have come for him. The men have gathered hoping that he can help. The women have come for blessings. So we're in the presence of a person, in terms of the book, who seems to be holy, who seems to be closer to God, and people flock around him for that. Um, I just want to briefly go over the, the scenes with the women. Um, but he tells, he tells um, Theodore at this moment, it's just a telling line. He says, don't be ashamed when everybody else is ashamed at that moment. On page 47, um, there are, I think, in my count, I think there's seven women. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the first one he comes to is, is described as a shrieker. That's the same term used to describe Alyosha's mother, Sophia, a shrieker. Um, that is a woman given to hysterics. In our, in our world, one of the translations says, I think she's crazy. That's the one translation. Um, but when they take her to the Eucharist on page 47, um, um, it, she's calmed. And everybody <coughs> believes that something holy enters her and gives her the strength to quiet. Um, and it's interesting, once again, like the monastery scene that I've just described with Zasa defining other characters becoming clear in relation to him, what happens with her clarifies the characters around her because some people say, oh, it was an accident, or if she had only done this, or if, if we had somebody like this, we would have done this. So you get all these different approaches of people, so all these, all, these all, alternative possibilities in what people do, but at the center of them is the Eucharist and this woman who's at least healed for a while. Um, on page 48, um, a woman comes to him who who weeps for the loss of her child and she can't stop weeping 
And Zosima says to her, do not stop your weeping, continue to weep, but do not let your weeping keep you from your husband. Because she's been so hysterical, she left. He says, return to your husband, go back to your husband. The third one is a widow um, on page 51 who thinks she's lost her son, top of 51. I tell you what, Pakhorovna, go to church and put your son on a list to be remembered among the dead. His soul, she says, will get troubled and he will write to you. Um, it's just the thing to do. This is one of her friends telling her this. Except Zasana says, no, do not think of it. It's a shameful, it's shameful to even ask. How is it possible to commemorate a living soul as one of the dead and his own mother at that? It's a great sin. It's like sorcery. So Zasana is not afraid to draw lines. He says, do not pray for your son as if he's dead because that's like blasphemy. It's assuming something about a spirit that you shouldn't. Um, and he, he says, go home and pray. Your son will return to you. And we know from later chapters that he does return. And some of the monks are scandalized. Some of the monks are scandalized that he would do that. Um, the, um, on 51, take a look. Another woman comes to her and describes the um, physical abuse she suffered at the hands of her husband, the bottom of 51. Once he was sick in bed, I was looking at him. I thought, what if he recovers, gets up on his feet again? What then? And then the thought came to me. Now it's left open. Wait, said the elder. He put his ear right to her lips. The woman continued in a soft whisper, almost inaudibly. She soon finished. It's the third year, the elder asked. The third year. At first I didn't think about it, and now I've begun to be ill. What's happened here? Is it clear? The woman's thinking of killing her husband. Thinking or, of killing him? Or at least allowing her to die. Or, yeah, or wishing he would die, maybe. Um, I thought she killed him. Wait a minute, that's uh... <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Somebody show him the door, please. <laughs> I think she killed him. Oh, maybe, yeah. Um, he says, 52, I was, I'm afraid, afraid to die. Do not be afraid of anything, never be afraid, and do not grieve. Just let repentance not slacken in you. God will forgive everything there's not and cannot be in the whole world such a sin that the Lord will not forgive. She may be thinking about it. I think, I think um, Zosima's response is, um, becomes more emphatic, more meaningful if the assumption is she's... Because, it, it show what, because I think what he's doing is showing there's nothing, no matter how bad a man is. Peter, um, David killed and committed adultery, and God loved him. It's Dostoevsky's way of underlying, and Zosima's, that it doesn't matter. What matters is your contrition and asking forgiveness, because God's mercy is infinite. Um, the next one comes, the next woman comes with a child. She wants to give money to the poor. Um, the one after that, um, the daughter, Lisa, is one of the, is the woman that Alyosha is gonna engage himself to marry. Um, but turn to the last one on, um, it, it's the chapter four, the, the Lady of Little Faith. She is overcome with grief, like a number of these women, and um, she's suffering, and Zosima asks, from what, at the bottom of 55? From what precisely? I suffer from lack of faith, lack of faith in God. Oh, no, no, I dare not even think of that. She doesn't disbelieve in God. She believes in God. What's interesting to her, I think 
what should be interesting for us is she's suffering from doubts about what she says is the immortality of the soul. She says in 56, um, Oh, how grateful I am to you. See, I close my eyes and think, if everyone has faith, where does it come from? And then they say that, all it came, that it all came originally from fear of the awesome phenomenon of nature, that there's nothing to it at all. What? I think all my life I believe, then I die and suddenly there's nothing. That is, the soul's not immortal. Um, I believe that I die and suddenly there's nothing, and only burdock will grow in my grave. As I read in one writer, it's terrible. What, what will give me back my faith? Though I believe only when I was a little child, mechanically, without thinking about it. Because so many of us believe without reflecting on things when we were younger, I mean, or, or we could have, um, the, the, the result of catechism, and then grow up in doubt. Um, how, how can it be proved? I've come now to throw myself at your feet. If I miss this chance to, then surely no one will answer me for the rest of my life. How can it be proved? How can one be convinced? Now stop. Zosima is going to go on to say, the answer to this is act of love, that you have to learn to love another. She says, bottom of 56, act of love, what is that? He said, just, it's not easy, it will not be easy, you, it, you will have to struggle to do it, um, but you, what you do is for the good of another person. That's what love is. But stop here for a minute. Um, What's the function of this woman at this point in the story when we've had a whole group of women reveal themselves as women? What makes this particular woman stand out? She goes on to say she loves mankind in general, but she hates people when they, you know, if you come up and you see a pimple on somebody's nose or you don't like the habit of this person. So it's easy to love people in thought it's much harder to do in the concrete. It's easy to love people in abstractions because it costs us nothing. It's much harder to love people with their faults. And he says, you've got to practice this. But, but what's the difference between this woman and the other women we've been looking at up to this point? Jeannie, what's the difference? Well, is it that she's thinking more of the whole theology of it than she's thinking on a higher plane about her issues than the other women, maybe? Um, she's thinking more deeply. Almost like she's using reason. Sorry? Almost like she's using reason. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. It's like yeah. everybody else is really emotional, really emotional upset yeah. or whatever. Mm -hmm. She's not. Exactly. She's calculating. I don't know about calculating, but. Well, everything she's thought about. Yes, yeah. yes. She, she, I mean, she, she's, she's thought about it. Yeah. She, yep. Yep. She struggles with it, but yep. it's very cold. She's doing what the men do. Yeah. This is, yeah. I mean, stop and think about it. All of the women up to this point have been women of faith. What she's trying to do is answer an issue of faith with reason. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to discover is when we go to the men, that's all the men do is use their reason. You have to ask where their faith is because when we watch them, it's not going to be there for the most part. So what we're seeing in her, this is, I think, why, why it's, and she's the last one. So it's Dostoevsky's way of underscoring something. She's more like the men, and she's showing the influence of these Enlightenment ideas from the West. 
How do you prove the immortality? By the way, I've said this before. I mean, this black-white mindset of our world drives me nuts. You, you know I keep saying that. I mean, it's just people get in these black-white mindsets, and that's the way they see things. Lots of people believe you, that um, God can't be proved, the existence of God can't be proved, the immortality of the soul can't be proved. Plato and Aristotle proved them 2,000 years ago using reason. Uh, it's not an empirical scientific reason, but it was reason. But she's, she's showing the influence of these Enlightenment ideas, and they're shaking her soul because she wants a proof concerning a matter of, in her mind, faith. What's the problem? St. Thomas said it ages ago, if, you, if faith based on reason, and reason can't prove faith, what happens to faith? Gone. Right? Um, and if reason depended on faith for it to work, and you lost your faith at some time, you'd turn into a skeptic. You wouldn't use your powers of reason. They belong to two different orders. In the Catholic Church, you know, they dovetail, because the object of both of them is God. God's the object of our faith. God's the object of our minds. For the Protestant world, that's not so. Reason is gone. It's fallen. It's corrupted. So in the West, I've said this again and again, philosophy and religion have grown up together. That wasn't so here. And so we're, we're watching people suffer from these, these disconnects. And here in this woman, we're watching a woman who's struggling, asking for proof when she... She's incapable of using her reason to do it, and yet her reason is questioning her faith. It's, it's undermining it. She's suffering from it. So once again, we're watching a community of people suffering from, you know, all the all that we've been talking about now. Now turn turn to the men. Let's go back to the men, can we? When Zosimov returns after giving his blessings, and remember one of the women came and wanted to offer money um, and give it to Zosima because he, he would know who would most benefit from it. So we see a whole variety of responses, but generally speaking, the women are suffering, they're carrying griefs. Lots of them have to do with their children or husbands. Um, in, in the case of one of them, it's a woman struggling with her faith because of the ideas that are beginning to have an effect on her mind. Um, on the bottom of 60, Zosima returns and he's told that Ivan has written an article in response to a man who was a church man taking a position on church and state. And Zosim, or Ivan um, responded opposing it. Bottom of page 60. Apparently, on the question of ecclesiastical courts, he completely rejects the separation of church and state. That's curious, but in what sense, the elder asked. So, um, Yvonne goes on and says, top of 61, I start from the proposition that this mix mixing of elements that is of the essences of church and state taken separately will, of course, go on eternally, despite the fact that it's all impossible, that it's impossible, that it will never be brought not only to an a normal but even to any degree of compatible relationship because there is a lie at the very basis of the matter. Compromise between the state and church on such questions as courts, for example, is in my opinion, in perfect and pure essence, impossible. The churchman with whom I argue maintains that the church occupies a precise and definite place within the state 
I objected that on the contrary, the church should contain in itself the whole state and not merely occupy a certain corner of it. Pacey says, that's true. Uh, Musuf, who's member, he's a progressive um, um, secularist, says, stupid, sheer ultramontanism. He sort of exclaimed, crossing and recrossing his legs in impatience. And I asked the question because I, do you, does anybody, does anybody know what um, ultramontanism means? This is a real shock to me. I didn't know what it meant until I read Dostoevsky, you know, hundred years ago. Does anybody know what it means? I think there are Catholic circles who define their lives with the notion. It's that important, and I, I'm not aware of it. I mean. I, it's a term used generally by people outside the papal states, outside of Italy, who, who refer to the Pope as being beyond the mountains, that there's a power there, and that that papal power is absolute. So they, they look to that, to the, to the authority of the Pope um, to decide on all issues, that he's sovereign in his right. I mean, it, it's like the um, infallibility of the keys when Christ said to Peter, here's the keys. And, um, but what he's saying is that the, what Musev is objecting to here is that to say that is to give the church too much power. If the church is going to absorb the state, um, then it's claiming a power it doesn't have, according to Musev, okay? Um, I don't want to, I don't want to, there's, it's a lengthy argument, I don't want to go back because I know you guys are all well beyond, but I just want to touch on some things. On 62, essentially this is undoubtedly what had to happen, but Rome as a state retained too much of pagan civilization and wisdom, for example, the very aims and basic principles of the state, whereas Christ Church, having entered the state, no doubt could give up none of its own basic principles of that rock on which it stood, and could pursue none but its aims once firmly established and shown to it by the Lord himself, among which was the transformation, transforming of the whole world, and therefore of the whole ancient pagan state into the church. Thus, it's not the church that should seek a definite place for itself in the state, like any social organization, but on the contrary, every earthly state must, must eventually be wholly transformed into the church and become nothing else but the church. Now you know, particularly since the Reformation, particularly with Calvin and Luther, and even with Henry VIII, that the church became absorbed under state power. So it moved in the direction of theocracies. And we know from the American founding, we, if you didn't know it before, you know it from Scarlet Letter, that the early forms of government in America, the Puritan forms, were theocracies. The, the, and if you remember from Scarlet Letter, when one of the, one of the ministers was talking, he said, you don't, you don't look to profane philosophy. You look to scripture. Because scripture was the authority for everything. So the church was the arbiter of all matters. Anything that didn't conform to it, out. That was the whole spiritual basis of Scarlet Letter. Are you okay? Are you all here? We've done Scarlet Letter, so if there's a question, ask it. Gita, you've got a question. Come on. I don't have a question. No? Sure? Okay. That was at the heart of Scarlet Letter. You know that um, the, the irony, it was intense, was that Anne Hutchinson was exiled 
because she didn't conform to church law, even though she, she said everything she did um, was in conformity to the Spirit. And because it was, she didn't have to um, be accountable to church laws. Everybody, like the, the majority of the Puritans, still held faith as their highest power, just like Anne Hutchinson. But they maintained that the evidence of that faith was conformity to those laws, and anybody who didn't conform to them was out. That's the black-white view of our founding. Okay? So here, Ivan is, is taking the position that it will only be when the church absorbs the state into itself that that conflict will be resolved. Okay? That's his position. Now here's the problem, and this is, this is why it's so important. Go to 64. Um, the, the essential question is this, and it actually it goes back to Scarlet Letter and Dante and everybody we've been reading. If a man commits a crime, or if a man's a sinner, how do you reform him? Um, the issue here is that the, the state is inadequate, that only God is. That's essentially Dimsdale's position. Remember when he argues with uh, Chillingworth that only God can heal a soul? Remember that fight that they had? Dims or, um, Chillingworth said, I'm not sure you're telling me everything you should. I should. If I'm to heal you, it would be better for me to know more. And Dimsdale began to get upset because he said, only God can take away sins. That's from Christ. So the underlying issue here is reformation. It's a reformation issue. How do you deal with sin? Okay, 64. Here's how it is, the elder began. All this exile to hard labor and formerly with floggings does not reform anyone, and above all, does not even frighten almost any criminal in any number of crimes. Not only does it diminish, but increase all the more. Surely you'll admit that. Turns out that society thus is not protected at all, for although the harmful members is mechanically cut off and sent away out of sight, another criminal appears. Go down. Only if he acknowledges his guilt as a son of Christ's society, that is, of the church, will he acknowledge his guilt before society itself. That's like Dimsdale's confession at the end of the Scarlet Letter. If it were so that judgment belonged to societies, the church, then it would know whom to bring back from excommunication. So, the argument that Zosim is making is that it will only be when the state is absorbed into the church that the, the, that the church state will have absolute power and what it can do is excommunicate somebody so that they know they're being removed from Christ. So that they really care about their soul, they want to come back because only Christ can heal, can reform. So, it's, it's, so the whole issue of criminal justice is seen in the context of the church. Okay, so here, uh, and I don't want to go. I don't want. I don't want to open arguments here. But just think about think about Islam as a theocratic culture. Think about America, where philosophy and religion have grown up hand in hand. And now to go to Russia, where there's not there's not a tradition of natural law. It's Holy Mother Russia, and now an enlightened world come to impose itself on it. And these men are talking about what should be the relationship between church and state. And at the heart of it is this issue of, is the state really adequate 
to reform the conscience of somebody who's committed a crime. Now that's going to be crucial for everything that goes on in this book because I don't want to, I don't want to get ahead, but I've already told somebody's going to be killed, there's going to be a trial at the end, we're dealing with constant stories about killings and brutality and, you know, um, there's sin and crimes everywhere. What's, what's being done about it? You know, where's justice being done? Can justice be done? So here at the opening, we're presented with this fundamental question of what's the relationship of an individual to his culture and what's the appropriate response to, to help him reform when he's committed a crime. Okay. Let me stop. I want to turn to um, um, just, I mean, you should, you should know that repeatedly in this section, um, the, the men keep talking about Luther because they're aware that what Luther did was remove the sacraments and so take away miracles the miraculous power that the church has claimed that it has to help heal people. The Eucharist confession, healing, you know, things like that. So it's not a small issue here. This is of serious importance, right? Deep importance at this point in the novel. Let me stop. Any questions about this before? I want to look at the novel and this Manipian, Manipian satire thing, but any I think, just to look ahead, Dostoevsky is setting this up for the ending. You know, if, you've, if you're that far along, that shortly after the Grand Inquisitor, um, the whole middle part of the novel, which I think is beautiful, I mean, I, I hope you're reading it, um, what the narrator does is present um, a biography written by Alyosha, presenting um, Zosima's words to him. So things that Zosima told Alyosha have been written down by Alyosha and they're, they're offered to us. So the whole middle story, the middle part here after the Grand Inquisitor, is, is um, an exploration into Zosima's background and we learn that he was young and violent, um, was in a duel, duel going to kill a man, um, um, ran around, he's a lot like Dimitri, women, um, and then a change takes place, and he meets, he meets a stranger, and I don't want to go into it because I don't want to give it away, but that stranger chapter to me is one of the technically most beautiful in the book, because he presents this stranger. All these people are, are learned that Alyosha was in a duel and let the man fire and then refused to fire back. Alyosha or Zosma? Or sorry, Zosma, sorry, 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 Zosma. And his regiment is in, because they're all men of honor, are humiliated and have nothing good to say about him. He's, he's shamed them, they want to get rid of him. And then they, some of them think about what he, he's done and actually turn to him in love, absolute love. And word gets around and the community surrounds him and people are devoted to him. His whole life turns around. During that part of his life, a man comes to him, it's called a stranger, who begins to visit him nightly, who tells him a story. And I can't go into it but be sure you read it next week, because that's where we're going. Um, the Zosima's biography and Zosima's encounter with this strange man and what happens because this opening on church and state, that story, Zosima and the stranger, are pointing towards what's going to happen later. So be sure you read it, okay? 
Um, okay, I want to take a minute to go back to the novel. To um, um, go over some things, but hopefully from a new perspective. Bakhtin, he's a Russian formalist critic, literary critic. I, I've mentioned his name before. Um, he's one of the most important literary critics of the 20th century because of the work that he's done on literature. And um, his work focuses on the novel because he says the novel is a new mode of knowing. Mikhail Bakhtin. And he said that the novel, I, you know, I'm repeating what I've said before, but I want to enlarge on it for a minute. The novel is different from the epic because it's a mode of openness to the indefinite present, whatever's going on. It's not a closed mode. He says it's dialogue, it's dialogic in nature. It's dialogic in nature. It's dialogic. And it has what he calls a carnival, carnival-esque aspect to it. It's subversive. Um, it's different. It, it, it differentiates itself from most 18th century novels, the Russian novel, particularly Dostoevsky. Because it doesn't show a world that's represented through one person's point of view. Because you know if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, everything comes through Homer's point of view. And the language that the characters have is largely Homer's. So it's like they, their language is subtly adjusted to his. In the novel, because it's more open to what's real in the present, it's dialogic because it presents people as they are in conflict with each other. Go back to Melville's. I, I've used this as an example before. You can even go back to Scarlet Letter. If you go back to Melville, do you ever see any of the shipmen engaging in a serious discussion with each other? You do not. If you go back to Scarlet Letter, do you ever see any of the people in that Puritan congregation challenging or discussing or differing with each other? It doesn't happen. You can't pick up a page of Dostoevsky and not find people going at it with differences. So in the, in the novel, particularly in Dostoevsky, Bakhtin is saying, what we've got is um, a, a work that's far more open, far more democratic, because it's showing people as they are. There's a carnival aspect to it in the Mardi Gras, because all forms of authority are turned upside down, they're questioned, just as they are in the Mardi Gras. So there's not an autocratic author, there's not somebody presenting through his or her point of view. Jane Austen would fit into that, although Jane Austen's moving away some. Her, her characters tend to have a language of their own. It's different from the writers. But in Dostoevsky, that's even more true. Faulkner is a master. You can't read a page of Faulkner and not find the black people speaking in their idiom or the, you know, the, what's the, the southern Indian, the Cajun, Cajun and, you know, the, the plantation owners, the educated. Uh, and all classes are represented in Faulkner. Benji, the idiot, who can't speak words. There isn't anybody Faulkner doesn't bring into his world and try to find a way of showing that person's experience. So things are not adjusted to the 
to the writer's perspective. It's as if the writer is opening and letting everybody speak for themselves. So it's dialogic in that sense, it's carnivalesque. He said the modern novel is polyphonic, many-voiced. It's not one voice. It's not monologic. It's not monologic. It's, it's polyphonic. Um, so it's as if it's the product of a democratic world of people stepping forward and showing, displaying some value in themselves, as if every person has a story. Faulkner's a master at it, those of you who've read it. Benji, you know, Quentin, Mink. Think, I mean, remember Mink was an itinerant farmer, a rat. Um, he becomes the subject of a trilogy. So we've entered a new world. And um, there are a couple of aspects to this novel that make it even more unique as a novel. One of the aspects is it has a, de a detective aspect. I, can't, I, I think I asked you guys, that if I didn't, I want to ask you now. If you already know the ending of the story because you've seen the movie or read study guides, please don't tell anybody what the outcome is, what happens at the end. Because I, I don't want people, I, if, I'd like people to experience the, the suspense aspect of it if you have it. But what's going to happen in the movie is somebody's going to die or get killed. So the, the novel's a detective novel in this sense. Who killed Mr. X? I'll put it in that form. Who killed Mr. X? We have to read to find out. When you read that um, Stranger chapter after the Grand Inquisitor, or, or the Zosimus story when we're going back into Zosimus childhood, or background, the stranger is going to come to him. I think you'll find as you're reading that chapter, you're going to ask yourself, what's going to happen? What will he do? What's happening? Because it gets very, very intense. So Dostoevsky is writing with a sense that, that life is full of unexpected things, and often they're not good. So what will happen? And one of the, one of the major questions we're going to have to deal with at the end is who killed Mr. X, and more importantly, when the court, because it's going to end with a courtroom battle with two sides, prosecuting and defendant side, which of them gets it right <coughs> or do they? This is so crucial because it goes to this question of faith and reason and the way people use reason and so often misuse it, constantly thinking they're right. So this whole question about faith and reason is right at the center of this book. Um, people are struggling with it everywhere. Okay. Okay. One last, one last thing before we look at um, Manipian satire. It's a, it's a unique kind of satire that's peculiar to literature. If you weren't in literature, it wouldn't have any meaning for you. But satire usually means making fun of somebody or poking fun at somebody. Manipian satire is a little bit different in this sense. In Manipian satire, you're going to a more general quality. It's as if, this is the only way, it's, it's a complicated, and there's no work that quite fits it. I mean, lots of works fit into the category, but it's not like it has a tidy definition. I can't give it to you. But it's a little bit like this. Manipian satire is like looking at a mirror that's been broken and fractured. And when, you, when it reflects something, you're getting fractured views of it, and you have to put them together. So it's a different kind of satire. 
Now we get some sense of that, as I suggested last time, in the titles. A nice little family. A seminarian careerist. You all, you all can hear the irony in that? Um, Rakuten is smug. He's educated. He thinks he's a little bit better than the other seminarians, so he goes around smug and stinking Lizaveta. Smerdyukov with a guitar. I love that title. Smerdyukov. Sounds like he's an artist. I want you to think seriously. Smerdyukov with a guitar. That's so... What's the word? Uplifts him. Elevates him in status. Smerdyukov with a guitar. Makes him sound like he has this great aesthetic sensibility. You know, he can play an instrument, a musical. He belongs to the refined. He's like a product of this European world that's come in and everybody wants to know, emulate. It's always interesting to talk with an intelligent man. Usually when you say that, or sometimes when you say that, you say that with a sense of irony. Um, but anyway, there's a sense of irony to so many of these titles. So it makes us aware that the narrator himself is aware of these ironies. Okay, But I want to go back to the seminary for a second. I just want to go back to one scene. Remember when the men first gathered and um, they were waiting for um, Dimitri. Go back to 40 and 41. I'm just going to do this quickly. Remember in 40, uh, they're late, and Fyodor says in the middle of 40, I myself am always very punctual to the minute remembering the punctuality is the courtesy of kings. Not that you're a king, muttered Miosov, unable to restrain himself. That's quite true. And he goes on and makes a clown of himself again. And he tells the story when he made fun of this colonel um, who gave him a thrashing afterwards because he associated them with something and then um, to another one said something about his wife that she was ticklish. And middle of 41. But it was a long time ago, so I'm not even ashamed to tell about it. I'm always damaging myself like that. You're doing it now too, Miosov muttered in disgust. The elder silently looked at him, looked from one to the other. Really, imagine, I knew it all along. Go down, I'm a natural born buffoon, I'm reverend father, just like a holy foo. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit. He goes on and on like this. Um, Yusuf um, becomes outraged. He's, he's embarrassed that he's there with him. And remember, um, Zosim is not. He's not troubled at all. And remember, on 43, be at ease, feel completely at home, and above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that's the cause of everything. He's too aware of himself in relationship to other people, which means he takes appearances too seriously, just as most of the people do in this scene. Now, go on over. I'll cut over. Um, Um, so, um, Demetrius comes in, Dimitri and, or Dimitri, Dimitri and Fyodor fight, and the meeting breaks up, everybody's embarrassed, and most go off, some of them are going to go off to dinner. Um, Fyodor goes away, and then he changes his mind and comes back on page 89. Take a look at this. He's already made a fool of himself. He's already made a fool of himself. 
but he's decided since he's made a fool of himself, he has nothing else to lose um, and comes back again. Um, 89. Excuse me, the spirit said, of old it was said, and they began to speak against many evil things. I think this is it. Yeah. They began to speak against me many things and evil things, and I heard it and said within myself, This is the medicine of Jesus, which you sent me to heal my vain soul, and therefore we too humbly thank you, our precious guest. They're trying to do everything they can to ease his discomfort. Tut, 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 humbug, old um, phrases, old phrases and old sentences, old lies and conventional bows. We know these bows, a kiss on the lips and a dagger in the heart, a shoulders robber, there's another illusion. I don't like falseness, fathers, I want the truth, and the truth is not in gudgeons. I've already declared as much. Father Monk, why do you fast? Why do you expect a heavenly reward for that? For such a reward, I'll go and start fasting too. No, holy monk, try being virtuous in life, be useful to society without shutting yourself of a monastery on other people's bread. And without expecting any reward up there, that's a little bit more difficult. I too can talk sensibly, Father Superior. What have we got here? He went up to the table. Old port wine from factories, medic, bottled up, I mean, probably not a cheap wine. Far cry from gudgeons, huh, Father? Look at all these bottles the fathers have set out, huh, huh, huh? And who's provided it all? The Russian peasant, the laborer, bringing you the pittance earned by his calloused hands, taking it from his family, from the needs of the state, you holy fathers are sucking the people's blood. Now, hold on, where? Go on over to page um, 163. It's the chapter one. Chapter one, book four. Alyosha returns to the convent to see Zosimov again. And this is what Zosimov says at the bottom of that page. Love one another, fathers. He knows he's dying. People are gathering around him. He knows he's going to die. And these are his words. These are stunning words to me. I'm trusting you all would have felt that. I'm not sure. But love God's people, for we are not holier than those in the world because we have come here and shut ourselves within these walls. But on the contrary, anyone who comes here, by the very fact that he has come, already knows himself to be worse than all those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. And the longer a monk lives within these walls, the more keenly he must be aware of it. For otherwise he had no reason to come here. But when he knows he's, he is not only worse than all those in the world, but is also guilty before all people, on behalf of all and for all, for all human sins, the world and each person's, only then will the goal of our unity be achieved. For you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all on earth. They share guilt. They're, he says, we shouldn't have been here unless we know that we're worse than all. And the longer we're here, the more that should become apparent. If we're not, we shouldn't be here. Um, now, what we learned then when he is introduced to the other um, um, monks is that we get a little um, thumbnail sketch of the monks. Um, sorry. 
and Father, we're introduced to Father Fairpont, who is a, um, really a hermit. He, he stays alone. He fasts a lot. Um, at the top of 168, they have a visiting monk who prides himself on fasting. And if you've read, you know that um, Fairpont eats almost nothing. Because he eats almost nothing, he looks at other monks and judges them on the basis of how much they eat or not. That is, how much they're really disciplining themselves, denying themselves. Top of 168, I was at your Sylvester's, used to live there. How Sylvester's health? The monk faltered. Huh? What metalheads you people are? How can you keep Lent? This is the refectory rule. Now he goes on to say that they fast in stages that get increasingly more difficult and then go back and repeat this, you know, the pattern. In the middle of the page, um, that's how it is with us, but what's compared to you, Father? The little monk added, taking courage for all your own, and even on Holy Easter, you eat just bread and water, and as much bread as we eat in two days lasts you a whole week. Truly marvelous is your great abstinence. And mushrooms, Father Fairpoint suddenly asked, mushrooms? The surprise monk repeated, right. I can do without their bread. I don't need it at all. I can go to the forest and live on mushrooms and berries, but they can't do without their bread here. That's why they're in bondage to the devil. Nowadays, these unclean ones say there's no need to fast so much. Arrogant and unclean is their reasoning. Ah, true, sighed the monk. Did you see all the devils around here? Asked Fairpont, around where? I was up at the superiors last year and haven't been back um, since. I saw one sitting on a monk's chest, biting under his, hiding under his cassock. At the top of 169, I'm telling you, I see, I see throughout. I was leaving the superiors. I looked, there was one hiding from me behind the door, a real beefy one, a yard and a, and a half tall or more, with a thick tail, brown, long, and he happened to stick the tip of it into the door jam. And me being no fool, I suddenly slammed the door shut and pinched his tail. He started squealing, struggling, and I crossed him to, to death with the sign of the cross. Talks about how rotten he was, and then let me stop here. Um, if you put all of these people, to, let's take the first scene in the monastery with um, Fyodor and um, Musev going at it, Zosimov coming in, and then Dmitri coming in, but just in the exchange uh, between Fyodor and Musev. Um, um, and then include in that scene Fyodor's return to the monastery and calling all the monks out, saying, you're cheating the people, you're using them, you're exploiting them, um, you're only here because you're, you're starving the peasants and they're dying. How do we look at Fyodor? I, I, we know, obviously, that he's a sensualist. He's a passionate man. He, there's an element of depravity. He's having sex once. He wants more money so he can have sex as long as he lives. Those, those are his basic motives. But my question is, what does he bring into view as a character? What's his function as a character in the novel? It's a different kind of question. What's his presence do? It's almost the basis of humanity, right? Almost animalistic. Because if you look at some of the characters, some of them are on different intellectual levels, emotional levels, are kind of all over the board. He kind of sets the bottom line. <laughs> so, 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 ground zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean you know, what'd you but, say, but, Carl? Ground, ground zero. zero. Yeah. <laughs> so, if he calls out 
the priest. He calls out everybody from that baseline. And he's not necessarily wrong when he says some of it. It's, it's just kind of interesting, you know, devoid, someone who's devoid of, I won't say devoid of morals or anything, very possibly, but I don't know how to put it in words. Um, he calls it like he sees it. And it's very, I would say, maybe not basement to base. Mm, yeah. uh, when he says it. So there's, yeah. a, there's a little bit of truth into some of the things that he says, and it's very cutting, uh, very, I, I guess, uh, raw. You, you know, so that makes him very, you know, very irritable. That it goes around him. And so, mm -hmm. so, you know, he's almost that uncomfortable feeling that walks into the room. You know? He's not stupid. Go ahead, Doug. No, I just have been. Imp I, I dislike him intensely. Just <laughs> <laughs> but, but I've been impressed as I read through the. You know, when you get a, a glimpse of him, he's all the things that you're describing, but he's not stupid. Um, he, he sees a lot. He recognizes a lot. Um, he uses it for his, own purposes. Uh, to be a buffoon or whatever mm -hmm. he calls it, mm -hmm. uh, but he's not stupid. Um, when I first met him, I thought he was just plain stupid, but he's not. We had a real conversation that first night when Doc was <laughs> Gita, what do you say? What do you see in him? How would you... What, my question is, how did I phrase it? What's his literary function? What comes to light in other characters through him? That's a harder question. You all following where I'm going? I, I don't think he's a likable person. I mean, I don't, but but it seems to me I don't want to. There's what Dostoevsky is just amazing to me in what he's doing. What what does he bring to light in other characters by his presence? He makes them uncomfortable, doesn't he? All the time, except Zosima. I mean, as you said, I right. Think. Yeah. That's that's the exception. But the regular, the common man around here. He's, he's the, what he does and how he does it challenges the manipulators. How, it's, it's almost like he, he brings out the bad in the bad people and the good in the good people. It's like he's Illustrate a, that now, both, both like of them. He's a, like he's a mirror. A, like a mirror, yeah. Like he, you know, they're... Well, when he acts like a buffoon, a Zazuma, acts even holier and more understanding and more... Or not understanding, he's just... Zosima's too caught in his own world. He's offended to be associated with him. No, 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 no she's Zosima. Oh, Zosima, sorry, I thought you said... Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm, yes. Yeah. Sorry, just, say it again, yeah. Jeannie. When, when Theodore acts like a buffoon, Zosima is elevated even, even yes. higher as a yes. holier yeah, person. Good. Yes. And when Theodore acts like a buffoon, to some of the others, they they act. They're bad. Is revealed. So it's like a catalyst. a catalyst. Yeah, a catalyst. That's a good word to describe them. Yeah, brings out the bad in the bad people, and it's really good. I mean, to put it both ways. Here, here's where I'm going with this. Um, this this is so amazing to me what he's doing, um, and I think I think I mean I'm really sorry. Some of some of the people who were here last week because of some of the things that um, you all had to say, but um, there's a truth value 
to Theodore. Um, and I want to try to put this as clearly as can. In a, in a society in which radical changes are being made, and you, know, you no longer can depend on codes of honor that have been established over time, like the South after the war, when a, when a, way of, a traditional way of, of living, it can be in any country, um, it can, um, I think about, I mean, I think about, I don't know about, I mean, I wonder sometimes about India, you know, I don't, I think of Japan, South, um, South Korea, there's not a question about Ireland or the South um, or Russia, because traditional cultures were absolutely uprooted. When you're in a situation in which traditional values are being destroyed and codes of conduct don't hold anymore, how do you know what to do? I ask this really seriously. What's proper? I mean, I, I, I happen to believe, that's true, I happen to believe this, that's true for most Americans more than they want to admit. Because the tendency is to, is to move towards a respectable world, or in our world, to defy it. And you've got these black-white situations again. But if you're in a world in which the most important values are radically changing, how do you know what to do? Being respectable isn't good enough because you know that respectable people are hypocrites. We've been learning that since Faulkner. I mean, we, there's not a book we've read that doesn't take the mask off of respectability. Musov is a perfect example. That's not an accident he's in this chapter. He's there because he's an image of that supercilious wanting to show he's better than other people. So whenever um, Fyodor embarrasses him, he's got to do everything he can to show he's not with him. And all he's doing is showing how proud he is. I mean, if we're reading closely, um, and the same thing with Zosima, you, you put it, that the, the holiness in him doesn't allow that to bother him. So he's, he's, a truth, he's a truth image. He makes us aware of this, what I'm calling this dislocating center, where things don't stand. Go through the book. Where do you find people who are absolutely comfortable doing what they do? Everybody, most everybody in the book is questioning themselves. Should I say it? Should I not? Codes of manner are gone. And we know from what's going on here that so many of the codes of manner are pretentious. They're putting on airs from Europe. They're not, who, they're not really who they were 50 years earlier. This culture is undergoing a change. And it's leaving people lost. So um, it seems to me that um, Theodore is not only an image of depravity, there's a truth factor to him, that he's, he himself is an image of what's going wrong. He, he makes the truth of it apparent. He doesn't know what to do. He keeps quoting passages from, you know, um, Voltaire and, you know, other Enlightenment thinkers. Um, he's a buffoon, he's making fool. If you're in a world in, in, which, values, in which values are no longer subtle, what do you do? I just think that's, I think it's so true of America in lots of ways. Uh, it was true for, it's true for the South, it's true here. Take the monk, you go, now let's leave the monastery for a second in that intellectual group. Go to the monks themselves. You've got Father Paisi, you've got Father Yasov, Zosimov, um, Fairpont, who am I, that group. Um, and by the way, remember um, Theodore goes back to the monastery and says, "You're all, you're all hypocrites. You're feeding off the world." So there's some way in which nobody's going to like him. The danger is, 
if we allow our dislike of him to keep him to keep us from seeing what he's revealing about this world but this is a lost world and so often the people who hide behind established codes are false now let's go to the monastery look at the look at the monks you've got Zasa monk you've got Fairpont Hussein Hussein <laughs> Last time he was over there, he walked in, he saw a devil on one guy's chest, he saw one hiding behind the door, and he happened to slam one on the tail. And mm -hmm. Do you see the same thing that's going on there? When we leave the monastery earlier, we get the sense that Payasi and Yasav, the librarian, and, and Zasavam are holy monks, that this is a holy place. Suddenly, fair punts thrown into the mix, and we're, and we're wondering, what's real? Is there something we're not seeing with these other monks? How much of it is that he's, he's too ascetic, or is there something else going on? And in all of these scenes, in the monastery with um, the fighting between Misov and Fyodor, and later when Alyosha goes to visit um, Zosima, and, and we meet Fairpont, um, we're left with these questions. Is there, is there something going on, or is he nuts? So Dostoevsky is constantly putting us in a situation to be careful of the way we judge somebody at a time when these particularly standards of respectability are being used to hide things, or even monkish vows, that there may be more going on in the life of monks than we realize. I think if any of us know priests, we know that, well, I mean, look at all the scandals. So Dostoevsky's not playing with stuff. He's not romanticizing. He's, he's opening the world to show us um, there's, there's more going on than often we see. Let me stop there. Is that clear, what I'm calling Manipian satire? That we can dismiss Fyodor, but to do that, we would be in danger of showing that we're hiding by respectability and when what he's doing is making us aware that there may, there's something wrong because all those codes are crumbling around him. Is that clear? No? Go. Huh? Come on, you got a question. Go ahead. I'm eager to hear it. Don't look at Suzanne. Come on, do you have a question? You got a question, come on. The interesting thing, I wanted, I'm not sure, because I know your mind is turning on something, I really would like to hear it. All of these writers, none of them are saying respectability is evil. When we read Faulkner, respectability is a good thing. It's what holds a community together. You have to have codes of, you know. But what we're also made aware of in these writers that very often other things are going on that make us aware to be careful that respectability can hide things and um, enabling. I mean, that's been one of the effects that we've seen all along. It's sort of scary to me, I'm speaking personally right now, because when you, when you look at it, um, I still identify, I mean, I you know, think of myself as a kid growing up and leaving a Greek world, or, you know, that so many people in America, women today, to me, 
they so absolutely fit into this category. I mean, we're talking about the South and Russia and Ireland. If you've lived according to a certain, you know, traditional ways of looking at things, and suddenly they're radically changed, then then what do you do? Who are you? Where do you, you know? If you look at what's happened to women in the last 50, 75 years, it's impossible for me to think about what's going on with women without thinking, Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine? Um, and I'm not thinking, I'm just not thinking about women stepping into political power so they've got power, because I look at that as one of the dangers. Now you've got this power and you think you're okay. You're not. It's not that respectability is bad or codes of behavior are bad, but during these times of change, it, it can have such dislocating effects. And I guess one of the questions asked about this book is, and I'll ask it at the end, not, not now, but where's the center? What do people hold on to when, you know, the, the ground is being pulled out from underneath you and you question yourself, like the woman of faith who said, I want proof in. You know, you're, um, you're living in a world in which things are so radically changing that you, sometimes you feel lost. I was basically thinking about the author and also sometimes when I read and I do that with any book, uh, you think the people around you and, uh, you know, some of the things described, it's happening around you. It, you know, I see power struggles, I see Absolutely. how people juggle yes. to get there. Yes. Um, so, you know, so I'm thinking, like with the author, because he grew up at that time, um, you know, what happened in his personal life, uh, you know, that he came up with this book and the characters, uh, it has to be based on of it at least. Uh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's partly a Mr. Shakespeare, you know, what they've given us are these works that, Dusty, I don't believe Dostoevsky could have written this if he, the gambling addiction, the fact that he was put before a firing squad and he was going to die, that he had to face some really agonizing things. But that's, you know, another, what, what I want to do is try to focus here because what he's showing us, I think, is so important for what's going on around us. What's, I don't think he could have done all of this if he, if he, first of all, if he wasn't an ex extremely sensitive person, he wasn't really bright, and he hadn't suffered a lot. That's my assumption. I think I'm safe on that, but I don't think he could have done this without it because it's too deep. Linda, do you have something? Not yet. I'm just taking this all in. It's like I'm jumping in feet first, and I'm not really good at critical thinking. I'm really enjoying this. And I think hopefully by the time I get through this book, I'll be able to analyze it the way you're talking about it now. That's partly why. I'm just going to make a couple comments on the... Um, Grand Inquisitor, and then we'll stop because I want to. I want to hold ourselves to the next five minutes. So, just give me five more minutes, and we'll stop. And by the way, I, I think I said this before, because I know most, a lot of this group has been doing it for years, and you know they keep. I mean, I've told people the first time I read the Iliad, 
I didn't get it. I was an undergraduate at Berkeley. was an English major. I never read it. And I thought I should know the Iliad. And the first time I read it, absolutely nothing. And then, it, it's, to me, it's one of the greatest books I've ever read. If you if you were with the class, you'd know how much I like it, or or the Odyssey, or the Divine Comedy, or. But none of us, none of us, can do this. I mean. I, it's gotten deeper. I, the irony for me is I thought I knew the Scarlet Letter. We did it, you know, the last couple of months, and I realized, I thought 40 years ago, and I did my dissertation, and I knew it, and then I read it again, and it, it just blew me away what I didn't see about that last confession. And I don't think I, I, there's no way I would have seen it if I hadn't entered a Catholic world. None. None. It just shocked me. So, don't feel strange in that sense. Um, <laughs> Just a, qu a quick word on the Grand Inquisitor. I, I'm, I'll take a few minutes with next week, and then we'll go on to the, the, the parts that I told you we'd look at. Um, Zosima's biography, when, when Alyosha tells the story of Josh's growing up, and particularly that episode with the stranger. But very quickly, um, Grand Inquisitor. Alyosha goes to Ivan to meet, and it's the first time the two of made a time for each other. They don't know each other as brothers. They've grown up not knowing each other. And so in one sense, we're supposed to feel this is a dear moment for both of them. And Alia, or Ivan describes his skepticism, why he's a skeptic. And it rests largely on his sensitivity to suffering. He keeps describing the horrible things that humans do to each other. And, and, and it's reinforced when he thinks about kids because he thinks kids, you know, adults sometimes do things to deserve. But kids don't. The fact that kids suffer, and I've told you the story about, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go over them, but some of the horrible things that people do, particularly with kids, we know it today. Um, and he says he wants no part of it. It's not that he doesn't believe in God, but that he wants nothing to do with this kind of suffering. So in one sense, it's like the Job story. He can't account for evil in the world. If God is a good God, how could God let this stuff happen. So he's horrified by it, and then from this, really it's Ivan telling Alyosha more about himself than the reverse, but he tells him all of this, and we get a picture of Ivan and how sensitive he is as an intellectual. And then he tells the Grand Inquisitor scene. And you know it's the story of the Inquisition in Seville, in Spain, and the Grand Inquisitor has just gone through a day where he um, executed, burned at the stake, almost a hundred heretics. So human beings are being killed f for their beliefs. Into this crowd walks Christ, and immediately he's surrounded by people. People are healed, just touching him, wanting him. And the crowd gathers because they see it's Christ or a prophet. The Grand Inquisitor comes out, sees him, and tells his soldiers to take him inside and arrest him. And later that night, he appears before Christ and tells, tells him, who are you, what are you doing, when he knows who it is. And what he does, I don't want to go into it because we'll do it next week, is what he does is he accuses Christ of failing, and he relates his failures to the three, the three temptations. Remember, the first one is, turn these stones into bread because people are starving, hungry. He doesn't do it. The next one he says... Um, takes him to a high place and says, um, I'll, I'll give you... Throw in yourself? No, it's the third. He says... You can have all of Jerusalem. 
yeah, you, yeah, you can have power over all of this control if you serve me. And in the third one, he takes them to the temple and says, throw yourself off because your angels will save you. And, and Christ says, you don't tempt God. So he gives them those three. Um, he, he, he speaks to him about those three and the effects of having re refused, rejected Satan's temptations. And I, I don't want to go into it more than that, but I, I want to look at that because for Dostoevsky, it's one of the major problems at the heart of Christianity. And it's one of the reasons I think Ivan has for doubting Christ. Because you know it's his expression of a problem. So what I want to do next week is look at the Grand Inquisitor just briefly. We don't have to spend a lot of time because you've already done it. But ask um, to be clear on what exactly Yvonne's saying in that story. And then see what it says about him. Um, what, is, what is this? Because we, in, this, in this novel we've got three men. Alyosha is at the center of it, but Dimitri's a character in his own right, so is Yvonne. And in those chapters, we get a really human side of Yvonne. He's sensitive to suffering. It pains him to see what's going on. There's something creative in him. He makes up this story. It's a painful story. It has to do with Christ visiting. And it's a serious, serious criticism of the Catholic Church. So where do... I want to look at that when we begin next week, okay? What is... What is what do we learn about Ivan, and what are Dostoevsky's concerns about the Catholic Church? Because we got them in the earlier chapters, we're going to get them here. It's going to be at the center of the ground, inquisitive. What is what what is troubling Dostoevsky about the Catholic Church? I just want to get clear on those. Okay. There's not enough here. <laughs> There's no reason not to be able to do this book just in a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> so just out of curiosity, what kind of student is